Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. look back over Australia's history at war, you'd be forgiven for thinking that disasters are few and far between. On those occasions where we've not come out of a battle shining in victory, we've at least been able to salvage a positive from it. Yes, we were beaten at Gallipoli, but a tradition was forged on those shores. And holding on for eight months was, in itself, something of a win. Fromel was a disaster, but gee, our blokes fought bravely. It was the Pommie officers that let us down on that one. Yep, Singapore, I hear you. That was probably the best candidate for an Aussie disaster. But even there, we fought well. The Poms up top didn't do us any favours again, and really, no one could have beaten the Japanese at that stage of the war. These are all battles which most of us have heard of, even if we don't know much about the details. But there is another one which you never really hear about. It was hard fought, it was brutal, and many Australian lives were lost. It wasn't really a disaster as such. However, it did gut the Australian division that took part of a lot of experienced officers, NCOs and men. Maybe the reason we don't hear about it is that it was overshadowed a few weeks later when troops of that same division played a crucial role in the success of a war-turning battle. The objective of this fight was a ridge in North Africa with a ruined building perched on top. It was duly named Ruin Ridge, but for the men of the 9th Australian Division, the name could not be more pertinent. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. First up, if you live anywhere in eastern Australia at the moment, particularly Queensland and northern New South Wales, you'll know that we've been getting a lot of rain lately. Why is this relevant to a podcast about military history? Well, I record these episodes in a state-of-the-art recording facility, more commonly known as your bog-standard colour bond garden shed. When it rains, you can hear every drop which falls on the roof. So I've been waiting for a break in the rain so that I can record this episode without any background noise. But it's now getting to the point that if I don't record now, I won't get this episode out on time. So I apologise if you can hear the heavens opening up in the background. Just think of it as a nice atmospheric enhancement to a tale of warfare in, um, yeah, in, uh, in the desert. Okay, let's just move on. And a shout out to Alan, a former member of 6RAR and the Royal Australian Corps of Transport from 1975 to 1987. Thank you for your comments and ratings on iTunes. As a former vehicle mechanic from Romy, I'll try not to hold your association with the truckies against you. Just kidding. Thanks, mate. Well, it appears that the episode on Number 3 Squadron was well received by the lovely people at History Guild. So much so that they've asked me to do another one for them. No doubt you remember from that episode that History Guild is an organisation dedicated to making history available to all in an easy, user-friendly way. Not just military history and not just Australian history. I could tell you what they have there, but as before, I'd rather you popped onto their website to look for yourselves. You'll never know what interesting snippets you might find. This episode will be included in the Australians in the Mediterranean during World War II series, so if you're interested in stories about this theatre, then pop over and have a look. History Guild was one of the sponsors of the hard-fought Australians in the Mediterranean 1940-1943 conference, which I had the pleasure of attending back in March. I got to meet some of the other contributors to this series, and I can assure you there is a massive amount of knowledge in some quite specific and interesting areas. All this can be found at historyguild.org. The link is in the episode description, and a big thank you once again to David Philipson for sponsoring this episode. And now, let's get on with it. So as usual, I have to provide a bit of background so we know how we got to this particular part of the war. I realise it would be easier if I stuck to some sort of chronological telling of these events, but I've never been one to make things easier for myself. Personally, I prefer the random nature of plucking topics from anywhere and any time over the last 100 plus years. Keeps things interesting for me and hopefully for you as well. At least I'm not predictable. Anyhow, how did we end up with Australian troops attacking a ridge in Egypt in 1942? I'll make this recap fairly brief because most of the main events I'm about to mention will be covered in their own episodes in the future and some of it was actually covered in the number 3 squadron episode. When the balloon went up in 1939, the 2nd AIF was formed, with the 6th Division being the first to head overseas. The 2nd AIF divisions were numbered from 6 through to 11. The 12th Division was known as the Northern Territory Force rather than 12th Division. 
This was because the first AIF divisions were numbered from 1 to 5. Makes sense. Like their predecessors in the 1st Division in 1914, the 6th Division, in 1939, were sent forth to Egypt on their way to England. And, just like in 1914, the situation in Europe had changed by the time the 6th Division made it to Egypt. The Battle of France had not gone well, to say the least, and Germany had got themselves a shiny new ally. As the Turks had done in the Great War, Italy had entered the war on Germany's side, and that necessitated a rethink of what to do with the Australians. The Italians were in North Africa. The Australians were also in North Africa. So the obvious thing to do was to send the Aussies to fight the Italians as part of the British 8th Army. Our first land-based assault was at Bardia on the 3rd to the 5th of January. From there, we chased the Italians all the way back to Benghazi, and it looked as though things were just about done and dusted in North Africa. A greater threat to the Allies was looming in Greece. German forces were massing, and the Greeks were looking like the next to fall. So, in a valiant, yet doomed attempt to save the Greeks, the 6th Division, with some Kiwis and English units, was sent to Greece. The 7th Australian Division was supposed to follow them, but the Greek campaign fell apart so quickly that they didn't actually get there. They would have their fight in Syria against the Vichy French. So, with the 6th and 7th Divisions otherwise occupied, the only Australian Division left around Benghazi was the fresh and untried 9th Division. For the record, the 8th Division was in Malaya taking care of the defence of Australia, should there be any threat from that direction. But as it turned out, the war in Africa wasn't done and dusted. It was in Germany's interest to keep Italy fighting. They were tying up a large percentage of British troops, aircraft and ships. Better for Germany if those resources were as far away from England as possible so as not to interfere with the German plans to invade the old Dart. To bolster the flagging Italian spirit, General Erwin Rommel was sent to Libya with a Panzer Corps which would become the famed Africa Corps. This battle-hardened and experienced corps, under the command of probably the best general which Germany had to offer, fell upon the 8th Army at Benghazi. The 9th Division had their introduction to war. I think in the number 3 squadron episode, I said the Benghazi handicap was the push towards Benghazi. But I misspoke, was incorrect, and maybe even I was wrong. The handicap was the disorganised hasty retreat from Benghazi when Rommel unleashed his forces. The retreat was such a mess that commander of the Western Desert Force Lieutenant General O'Connor and General Officer Commanding and Military Governor Soronatia, Lieutenant General Philip Neem, VC, were both captured during the retreat. The Australians called it the Benghazi Handicap because it was a race. It was obvious what the German objective was. They wanted to seize the Suez Canal, but to do that they had to secure a deep water port. The only such port was the seaside town of Tobruk, which the 6th Division had taken from the Italians in January 1941. Rommel needed it, and the British needed to keep it from him. It came down to the wire, but the predominantly Australian force won the race and dug in to repel Rommel's attempt to take the town. This was the beginning of the epic siege of Tobruk. The 9th Division kept the Africa Corps at bay for eight months. As an aside, this was the first occasion in World War II that a German ground offensive was stopped. But after eight months of hard work, poor diet, and just surviving in conditions that would wear anybody down, the 9th was finally relieved and sent to Palestine to recover. In their absence, the town of Tobruk was garrisoned by British troops, who, a couple of months later, abandoned the town. Must have been a massive kick in the guts to the 9th Division blokes. But the situation had changed, and Tobruk was no longer considered vital enough to justify the men and equipment required to hold it. But the Aussies' effort in holding on made the change in situation possible. After a series of battles, Rommel had managed to push the 8th Army back along the Libyan coast towards Mersimatru. Lieutenant General Neil Ritchie was relieved of command by Lieutenant General Auchinleck. With the bulk of his forces now in the region of El Alamein, Auchinleck needed to delay Rommel, and so the Battle of Mersimatru was fought while the bulk of his forces prepared for what would be the First Battle of El Alamein. And that's where the 9th Division once again returns to the story, and where we focus on their part in that battle, Ruin Ridge. In actuality, the main focus of the coming attack was called Materia Ridge, it was a feature which consisted of three parallel ridges running more or less east to west. The ruin was on the third of these ridges at roughly the point where that ridge separates from the other two at about a 45 degree angle. I'll be chucking up a few maps on the website to help you get oriented. The opening moves of 1st Alamein are quite complicated and probably outside the scope of this episode, but I'll summarise as best as I can. Basically, after falling back from Mercer Matru, Auchinleck set up his defensive line in the El Alamein area. Rommel, hot on his heels, also took the opportunity to regroup and prepare for the next phase of his attack in much the same area. 
By early July, both men reckoned it was about time to go onto the offensive. Auchinleck got in first, launching his attack on the 10th of July. Australian troops were involved and did some good work, seizing the important strategic position of Tel El Aysa. Rommel planned to cut off the Australians. Auchinleck noticed that Rommel was transferring forces to the north on the 12th, but he didn't realise that the bulk of Rommel's armour was still kept in south in readiness for his own offensive when the Australian penetration had been dealt with. Throughout the day of the 12th, the 9th Division suffered an artillery bombardment which grew in intensity as the day wore on. Then, at about 6pm, the German infantry attacked along the whole of the 2nd 24th Battalion front. Captain Anderson's company from the 2nd 23rd had been sent forward to reinforce the 2nd 24th and they bore the brunt of the attack. It was a tough fight, but by 9pm the Germans pulled back, leaving around 600 of their comrades behind, dead. The Australians were warned to expect another attack the following day, but it wasn't Rommel's intention to take the position, just to cut the Australians off, which they more or less achieved. Rommel ordered his forces to have another crack at the Australians on the 14th of July, and more hard fighting ensued. But once again the position held, but it was a close-run thing. Another attack was supposed to be put in the following day, but Auchinleck unleashed his own assault on Aruiasset Ridge and Rommel's attack had to be scaled down. Nevertheless, at 7.30am, after another artillery barrage, 35 tanks and about 7 companies of infantry advanced. Only about 14 tanks made it to the base of the position, but the infantry were forced back and so the tanks were obliged to also withdraw. All up, 4 attacks were made that day. A German account stated, At 4.15 on the 15th, the 5th Armoured Regiment was ordered to continue the attack against the Australians with such subunits as were available. The 2nd 104th Battalion advanced across the railway northwest of the cutting at 5.50 and at 8 o'clock 12 tanks of the 5th began thrusting from the west north of the railway and by 2pm reported that it had reoccupied the former positions but was being prevented by artillery fired from moving up heavy weapons. Late in the afternoon this attack had to be broken off and the 5th Armoured Regiment moved southeast to meet the attack southeast of the El Alamein box leaving one battalion of the 104th Regiment to hold in the northern sector. That night, an attack was made by the 2nd 23rd Battalion to recapture the positions known as East Point 24, which the German account mentioned. The attack was successful, and in order to exploit this success, Captain Neuendorf of the 2nd 24th led his men through the 2nd 23rd to push further forward, with the 44th Royal Tank Regiment in support. Neuendorf was wounded in the hand, but continued to advance calmly and keep his troops in good order. By 7.45, West Point 24 had been taken. Unfortunately, shortly thereafter, Neuendorf went to give first aid to a wounded man, and while making his return, he was killed by a German shell. The Australians then came under heavy fire, and it was apparent that the Germans had command over the area they'd just seized. With casualties mounting, and unable to find any tactical reason to remain, Lieutenant Colonel Evans ordered a withdrawal back to East Point 24. That was basically the end of the first phase of the 9th Division's involvement in 1st Alamein. They'd held off successive German and Italian counter-attacks over five days, inflicting heavy casualties, while suffering comparatively few casualties of their own. They'd done well, but Auchinleck's attack on Ruissat Ridge was still going on and he needed to relieve enemy pressure on his centre. His plan was to launch attacks on both his northern and southern flanks, and so the Australian 24th Infantry Brigade was sent north to capture Makhad Ridge and then turned southish to push towards Ruin Ridge. The 2nd 32nd Battalion was to take Trig Point 22 on Makhad Ridge in a night attack and then the 2nd 43 would pass through at dawn and advance 5,000 yards to capture Ruin Ridge. The 44th Royal Tank Artillery in their Matilda tanks would support the flanks along with the 9th Division Cavalry in their Valentine tanks. The 9th Australian and 1st South African Artillery Divisions would provide the Big Bangs along with the two British Artillery Regiments. The 2nd 32nd led off the attack at 2.30 on the morning of the 17th of July with three companies in front. They hadn't gone far before they were subjected to fire from artillery, mortars and machine guns. A Company, out on the right flank, was slightly geographically embarrassed by quarter past five. The company commander, Captain Forward, reported that he thought his company had overshot the objective at Trig Point 22. It turned out that he was right. He'd overshot it by about 1,500 yards. That's a pretty big miss. But in his defence, it was dark, and I imagine that one part of a sandy ridgeline looks pretty much like any other part of a sandy ridgeline in the dark. The other two companies managed to lob onto their objectives and secured about 160 prisoners. But there was a problem. There were gaps between the companies and in these gaps were strong enemy forces, particularly between where Captain Forward's company was and where they were supposed to be. A platoon from the 2nd, 2nd Machine Gun Battalion had been established on Trig 22, but the enemy forces counterattacked and forced them off the crest. 
Not happy with this situation, Lieutenant Colonel Whitehead ordered his fourth company to retake the crest, which they managed to achieve by 7.45. An hour later, and all of the 2nd 32nd objectives were secured. At 6am, the 2nd 43rd Battalion, under Lieutenant Colonel Wayne, moved off with two companies forward and a third about 500 yards behind. Almost immediately, they were subjected to heavy artillery fire. One burst from a 20mm general-purpose gun caught Bill Bass of 16 Platoon at about belt height, sending shrapnel fragments into his abdominal region. Everyone thought he was done for, but after a long stay in hospital, he somehow survived. In his brilliant book, An Australian Band of Brothers, Mark Johnson quoted from the diary of Lindsay Thomas of D Company describing this advance. I tie prisoners coming in. We move through them towards objective. Artie and mortar getting heavier. Our Artie not doing much good. Tanks a damn nuisance, moving about amongst us, drawing all the heavy fire on us. Damn them. Not doing any good either. Some of our chaps going down. Two just behind me. Swine. Going straight on. Tanks blown up on minefields. I ties coming out with white flags. Poor devils, just wave them back through us. They're glad to be out of it. Don't blame them, so would I. End quote. This quote goes to show that, at least from an infantry perspective, tanks were a double-edged sword. Technically, they were there to deal with machine gun posts, which might hold up the infantry advance. If they were doing that, then they would be an asset. But, as Lindsay Thomas points out, they weren't doing much good during this advance. Instead, they were drawing heavy fire directly onto the infantry in their midst. You kind of get the impression he wasn't too distraught when the tanks hit the minefields. The left-hand section of Lindsay's D Company had all their members wounded, except for Private Dean, a former butcher from Minipa, South Australia. Private Dean maintained the advance on his own, with just his Bren gun, eventually making it back to his platoon about a thousand yards further on. He would survive the North African campaign, only to be killed by the Japanese in October of 1943. But despite the heavy shelling, machine gun fire and heavy casualties, the attacking companies were on Ruin Ridge by 7.30am. D Company had advanced the furthest of the companies and found that, upon reaching their objective, there were 19 enemy guns firing across the position from only 300 yards away. Captain Gordon figured they'd better do something about them and took a platoon and some men from company headquarters and captured the gun positions and another 150 prisoners. He was an interesting bloke, Captain Gordon. One of three or four main sources marked Johnson's book. He contains many letters to his wife, always praising his troops and hoping he was worthy of them. In his letter describing this fighting on Ruin Ridge, he wrote, It was nothing short of a miraculous revelation to see these brave young men plodding steadfastly forward through a rain of bullets and shells bursting overhead and on the ground. I pray to God that I shall always have enough nobility within me to rise above pettiness in this world. Here lay inspiring courage before my eyes. God-fearing men I shall be eternally proud of. End quote. Note that he praises the bravery of his troops advancing under heavy fire and plodding steadfastly forward. He neglects to mention that he was advancing under the same fire, just as steadfastly and with just as much bravery. It was probably his example which helped encourage these blokes he was so proud of. A very self-effacing man and a true leader. Unfortunately though, his involvement in the battle was about to come to an end. In the same letter to his wife, he recalled, I was plodding along with my runner ten yards away, when a shell burst just in front of us, and a piece of shrapnel therefrom hit me in the face. It was a terrifying second until I realised I was still alive. His platoon sergeant, Graham Hartree, rushed over and reassured Gordon that his eye was still intact. But as Gordon's mate, Captain Jeans advised, Gordon left the field retired hurt. Jeans would later be wounded in the leg and shoulder and would himself be evacuated. The right-hand company, B Company, under Captain Hare, advanced 2,500 yards before meeting any heavy resistance. But they pushed forward, and after advancing another thousand yards, they reached their objective. The sight that greeted them was not encouraging. Off in the distance, they saw seven tanks and about 400 other vehicles, indicating a large body of troops gathering. Corporal Yendall went forward on his own, in full view of the enemy, and pinpointed the exact location of the enemy and directed his platoon's fire onto them. Just after 7am, B Company came under heavy attack by tanks and infantry. But by this stage, the company was running low on ammunition and had no anti-tank support. The vehicle carrying the artillery Ford Observer had been hit, and without communication, B Company was unable to call in artillery onto the tanks. Figuring the best form of defence was attack, Colonel Wayne proposed to advance about 800 yards to capture enemy vehicles and guns. He put the proposal to the commander of the 44th Tank Regiment, and was advised that there were only six tanks left and no support could be provided. With no other option, Wayne saw permission to fall back and the position on Ruin Ridge was given up, with the 2nd 43rd retiring to Maccad Ridge 
on the left flank of the second 32nd. Meanwhile, back on Trig 22, the second 32nd was subjected to increasingly heavy fire and at around 10am tanks and armoured cars attacked but were driven off. Corporal Leeson, with a captured Italian Breeder gun, knocked out three vehicles before he was wounded when a round smashed into his gun. He somehow managed to repair the weapon and fought on, shooting at troops, vehicles and even low-flying aircraft. Fighting continued throughout the day, but the Australians were pretty well ensconced on Muckhead Ridge and in the late afternoon, some rearranging of the units was carried out, strengthening their hold. The brigade had taken 736 prisoners during the day from the Italian Trento Division, Tresti Division and the 7th Bersagliari Regiment. The main objective, Ruin Ridge, had been briefly held but had to be relinquished. But the points for the day's fighting went to the Australians. Rommel, in a letter to his wife, wrote, The enemy is using his superiority, especially in infantry, to destroy the Italian formations one by one. And the German formations are much too weak to stand alone. It's enough to make one weep. End quote. This attack by the Australians had obliged Rommel to move some of his own units to send to the assistance of the Italians. This meant he had to call off his planned offensive, which he had hoped to throw in against Auchinleck. His last hopes of being able to launch a decisive attack had now turned to dust. But, I hear you ask, that sounds like a win for the home team. I thought you said the battle for Ruin Ridge was a defeat. Surely you talk in riddles, talky bloke. Well, the battle for Ruin Ridge wasn't over yet. At about 5pm, Axis forces launched a stronger counter-attack than those they had already put in throughout the day. The attack went in against the junction between the 2nd 32nd and the 2nd 43rd Battalion. Lance Sergeant Daly of the 2nd 3rd Anti-Tank Regiment inspired the troops around him by knocking out six tanks on his own, despite being wounded twice. The Australians defended their hard-won ground with tenacity, but two forward platoons of the 2nd 32nd were overrun and 22 men were taken prisoner. In the words of the Brigade Report, an ugly situation seemed to be developing. The weakest point on any front is the junction between two battalions, and the Axis were pushing hard at this point. The two battalions made a judicious withdrawal to the telegraph line about 1,500 yards back, where they managed to stabilise the front. But they couldn't allow the enemy to hold the positions recently vacated, and so at 7.10pm, Major Cox, who was acting commander of the 2nd 28th Battalion, was ordered to take his A, D and C companies to retake the ground. B Company was to remain in reserve. It took a while to get things organised, but at 12.20 on the morning of the 28th of July, the battalion moved forward and just over an hour later they had reclaimed the positions. With no intentions of giving up the ground again, sappers of the 2nd 7th Field Company spent much of that day laying 2,500 mines. And so by the afternoon of the 18th of July, the 24th Brigade was set up in a triangular sort of a formation, with the 2nd 32nd to the right rear, the 2nd 43rd to the left rear and the 2nd 28th at the peak. It sounds like a pretty good defensive position, but the only downside was Trig Point 22. It was a small spur from the main ridge and it pointed to a position behind the 2nd 28th, with a direct line of fire to the junction between the 2nd 32nd and the 2nd 43rd. A recon party from the 2nd 28th was sent out to discover the situation on the Trig Point and reported that it was manned by a lone German soldier and his machine gun. Probably quite an easy prospect to remove, but the patrol also discovered a German reconnaissance party having a look at Maccad Ridge, and before any further action could be taken, an airburst shell exploded over the 2nd 28th position, signalling the beginning of possibly the worst day in the history of the 2nd 28th. The shelling kept up all day, and the battalion suffered more casualties from that bombardment than it had during the entire six months in Tobruk. But despite this, no infantry attacks were put in throughout the 18th. Rommel was still reorganising his troops to make good the losses of the Italian regiments. Apart from the shelling, the 24th Brigade were fortunate that for the next few days, up to the 22nd of July, they were not required to do much except hold on where they were. The fighting has shifted to other parts of the front to the south. Auchinleck sent his 30 Corps to take Rueasset Ridge in the centre of his front. A long story short, it wasn't a great day for the British attack, which included the 2nd New Zealand Division. The assault was directed right at the heart of the Panzer Corps, and the South Africans, Indians and the Kiwis managed to take their objectives on the 21st of July, but paid a heavy price. The New Zealanders lost 700 men killed, wounded and captured. The 23rd Armoured Brigade punched hard at the Axis armour, but by the end of the day they only had 7 tanks left out of the 87 they had started with. The Kiwis attacked again later in the day, and added another 200 casualties to their butcher's bill. The New Zealand 2nd Division would be out of action for months after Ruiz at battle, but worse than that, the morale of the survivors was smashed. 
General Inglis, commander of the second, wrote to General Freyberg stating, I have flatly refused to do another operation of the same kind while I command. You know it's bad when a general is talking like that. But the fighting continued into the 22nd of July and the 9th Division was ordered to advance on all its fronts and move onto the Materia Ridge. The 9th Division push would be supported by the 1st Tank Brigade and the South African Artillery, which sounded good, but the 1st Tank Brigade was a brigade in name only, and artillery would be spread out over a wide front. Things were starting to resemble some World War I battles, with thrust after thrust being ordered, less and less cohesion each time, and less concentrated support as tanks and artillery pieces were lost during previous advances. Morshead certainly wasn't happy about what was being asked of his division. His diary entry for the 21st of July read, Two hours conference with Ramsden, during which I objected strongly to the scope of my attack to take place tomorrow and several changes in timing. As a result, Commander-in-Chief sent for me and conference held at 30 Corps. Commander-in-Chief explained plan of 13 Corps' attack. I did not like our plan because of wide dispersion and difficulty to support and pointed out that our immediate objectives were much more difficult than realised by Army and Corps. Commander-in-Chief, according to Ramsden, was very annoyed and perturbed, but he did not show it. End quote. One thing Morset didn't mention was that his troops were just about knackered. They'd fought hard on the 17th and the 18th. They hadn't been idle in the days between the 18th and the 22nd. During the nights they'd been kept busy digging and patrolling. Sleep during the days was impossible due to the heat and the flies and the fleas. So the men had enjoyed bugger all sleep from early morning on the 17th to the morning of the 22nd. That's basically six days without a decent kip, and yet they were expected to carry out their second attack in that six-day period. Fair enough. The 26th Brigade, comprising the 2nd 24th, 2nd 23rd and 2nd 48th Battalions, was to attack to the north. The 2nd 24th was to push along the coast towards Trig Point 25, while the 2nd 23rd pushed inland to take East Point 24, and the 2nd 48th pushed further inland to West Point 24. Major Weir was called up from Alexandria the day before the attack to take command of the 2nd 24th. He arrived with only hours to get his head around what was being asked of the battalion, to meet his company commanders and figure out where his troops were. Not a great way to start. In the wee small hours of the 22nd, the 2nd 24th was waiting in their staging areas before the attack and a very light was accidentally fired. The waiting Axis forces would have seen this light and wondered what it meant. Every one of them was awake and waiting when the 2nd 24th began their advance a short time later. Almost immediately, the artillery began to rain down on the advancing troops and the machine guns opened up not long after that. The Australians took heavy casualties, with most of the senior officers being killed or wounded. On the right flank, Captain Baileu's company was hit hard, with Baileu and his second-in-command being wounded. Rather than a coordinated company attack, the advance developed into a series of platoon actions, unsupported by other platoons. Upon arriving at their objectives, the survivors found they were being swept with fire from their flank and from behind. Pretty soon, the only officer left was Lieutenant Austin, a 24-year-old former schoolteacher. He was now in charge of the company position, the poor bugger. Fortunately, he did have one senior NCO, Lance Sergeant Amir, to help him command the beleaguered remnants of the company. On Austin's left, Captain Mollard led his company forward and managed to gain its objective, but the ground was so rocky the men couldn't dig in and were subjected to machine gun fire. Sergeant Hughes saw two Spandaus which were causing the problem, so he crawled forward and with two shots he killed the number one of each gun. When the number twos took their place, Hughes shot each of them as well, putting the guns out of action. Hughes then attempted to rescue a wounded comrade by carrying him on his back. But as he was making his way back, the wounded man was shot again and killed. Sergeant Hughes survived. But the situation was untenable, and Captain Mollard turned towards what was left of Lieutenant Austin's company. By 6.45, Major Weir decided the two companies would need to be withdrawn, as he was unable to reinforce them. Communications with Austin's company were a bit sketchy, but when the phone line was restored, Austin ordered Amir to take the company back while he stayed behind to organise the removal of the wounded. While undertaking this task, Austin himself was wounded. The order to withdraw didn't get to some of the most forward units, which continued to fight on throughout the day, but they were eventually overrun. The day's action had cost the 2nd 24th five officers wounded and 20 other ranks killed. 39 wounded ORs were brought in. 14 other men known to be wounded were missing, six of whom were believed to now be dead. And finally, there were a further 15 simply listed as missing, as 93 men lost with nothing to show for it. The 2nd 23rd had a slightly better day, except on their right flank. 
The right-hand company was to advance to the left of Mollard when the success signal was seen from Mollard's advance. This they did, and Mollard witnessed them pushing forward. But they met such heavy resistance that they failed to reach their objective and had to fall back. The main body of the 2nd 23rd pushed towards East Point 24 and after a fierce fight was able to fire the success signal by 20 past 6. With the 2nd 23rd on top of East Point 24, the 2nd 48th commenced its push towards West Point 24. Captain Williams' company on the right would make a beeline for the objective while Captain Kimber on the left made a wide sweep to come in from the flank. Both companies met heavy fire but kept advancing. During the advance, wireless communications broke down and enemy fire intensified the closer they got to the objective. By the time they came within range of the enemy front line, Kimber's company only had one officer left but he was out of touch with the company and so Company Sergeant Major, Sergeant Pryor, took command and led the company forward. On the right, Williams' company was pinned down 100 yards short of the enemy positions. Private Gurney jumped up and charged at a German machine gun post, killed three Germans with his bayonet and then ran on another 30 yards, bayoneted another two Germans while sending a third one back as prisoner. He was then blown off his feet by a German grenade, but he popped up again and charged a third post. He was in the process of bayoneting the defenders of that post when he was killed by another machine gun. Needless to say, Private Gurney was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross for this action. So why were these men apparently going forward without armoured support? Well, the commander of the 2nd 48th explained what happened there. But before I quote him, just keep in mind that he had just seen his battalion suffer heavy casualties and may not have been in a charitable frame of mind. Quote, The tank commander was given the task of supporting the attacking companies onto the objective. He asked for 20 minutes to move, but the tanks actually took four and a half hours to cross the railway line. The time lag seemed almost impossible to explain. On crossing the line, they found a small enemy minefield, withdrew, held a conference, and moved forward to attack again. Two tanks moved gingerly forward and were knocked out by an enemy anti-tank gun, the only one seen in the area. The tanks then withdrew completely. End quote. Make of that what you will. At 8am, the Germans put in a heavy counter-attack against the 2nd 23rd on East Point 24. They pushed hard against the left company, but the position held for three hours. The 2nd in command of the 2nd 23rd, Major Urquhart, was sent forward in a carrier to tell the troops to hold tight as reinforcements were coming. The battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Evans, then learnt that Mollard was falling back on his right flank. He was waiting for a report on the position of his own troops on East Point 24 but Urquhart had been killed on the return journey after delivering his message. In amongst all this chaos and doubt, Corporal McCluskey managed to provide about the only real information back and forth. He was a carrier driver, and his initial task had been to transport a mortar detachment forward. Having achieved that, he realised many of the frontline troops were running low on ammunition, so he drove his carrier back over the shell-swept ground, picked up some more ammo and drove forward again. Having sorted out the ammunition problem to some degree, McCluskey then figured communications were the next priority. But rather than take back an empty carrier, he loaded it with wounded and headed off again. This time though, his carrier was hit and McCluskey was knocked unconscious. When he came to, he repaired his carrier, remember there's still bullets and artillery flying around, jumped back in and delivered his wounded passengers and a report on the situation at the front. A good day's work, all in all. At about 8.30am, all communication with the left-hand company had ceased. This was the company which was making the flanking attack on West Point 24. Some of that company began to filter back to headquarters at around 11am, reporting that the commanding officer had been killed, the 2IC wounded and all other officers wounded. They were, however, able to report that the reinforcing company had arrived and were holding the position. Lieutenant Colonel Hammer, commander of the 2nd 48th, was also feeling the pressure. His right-hand company, D Company, had lost its cohesion due to the loss of most of its officers. They did manage to hold their ground, though. Private Ashby had taken command of his section earlier in the day and had led it against several enemy posts. When he saw a Valentine tank which had been knocked out and the tank's crew had been taken prisoner, Ashby quickly and efficiently shot each of the German captors and the crew was able to escape. Private Ashby is a good example of one of the strengths of the Australian military doctrine. With all officers and NCOs in the immediate vicinity lost, a private soldier stepped up and took control. And the other privates followed. I know this isn't unique to Australia, but it is certainly at the centre of how Australian soldiers have been trained to operate. Another example of the confusion which reigned across the entire attack front was the message Hammer received from Sergeant Pryor of B Company. Hammer hadn't heard from B Company for quite a while, but finally, by late afternoon, Sergeant Pryor managed to make radio contact. 
informed Hammer that the company was holding on, but he had no idea exactly where he was. All the officers who carried maps had been killed or wounded. Hammer set about gathering a reinforcement force to locate and assist Pryor, but before they could set out, Pryor sent another message saying they were surrounded and would attempt to fight their way out. Regardless, A Company, under Captain Schillicker, set out. They met the remains of Pryor's company on the way out. There was only 15 of them left. Schillinger continued on and occupied East Point 24. It was the end of a desperate day for the 2nd 23rd and the 2nd 48th. They had been forced off ground which they had taken. Heavy casualties had been suffered, particularly amongst the officers. It was a poor outcome for all involved. But it wasn't as pointless as it may have seemed at the time. Early next morning, patrols reported that the enemy had abandoned both East and West Point 24. Over on the 24th Brigade front, Trig Point 22 was literally a thorn in their side. The Germans were still there, causing problems. It had to be dealt with, and so an attack was ordered for the 22nd of July, consisting of the remnants of the 2nd 32nd. That battalion had been reformed into two companies. One company of the 2nd 43rd would join them in the attack. The start line was 1,700 yards from the objective. The troops set off at 5.30am after 15 minutes of artillery preparation. The 2nd 43rd company, on their right flank, was the first to be fired upon and its commander, Captain Sedoltz, was mortally wounded. The commander of the centre company, Captain O'Mara, was killed not long after and command fell to Lieutenant Bennett. He managed to seize their objective, but was then pinned down by heavy fire. The right-hand company captured three anti-tank weapons throughout their advance, but were held at an escarpment below Trig 22. Lieutenant Cameron, leading the supporting machine gun platoon, set up his post on the left flank and he decided that a German post was causing some inconvenience to the advance. So, armed with nothing but his service revolver, he charged the post as it was firing in the other direction. When the gunner finally noticed Cameron, he jumped up and was shot by one of Cameron's men. Cameron then jumped in behind the Spandau and used it against its former owners until it jammed. By around mid-morning, the companies were more or less where they should be. But at 9.45, the Germans put in a heavy attack against the centre company using artillery, tanks and armoured cars. Bennett and a number of others were killed, with another 66 men taken prisoner. The tanks were eventually driven off by artillery fire, but they had done a significant amount of damage. The fighting continued throughout the day, but no further advance was made. It was decided that taking Trig 22 would be too costly, and so the decision was made to merely contain it. Anti-tank guns were sighted to enable them to cover the position and defensive pits were dug in ground more suited to defence. While all this was going on, Morshead visited Brigade Headquarters waiting to be updated on the progress. He wanted to begin the exploitation phase of the battle, but with nothing in any way secure until very late in the day, he confirmed with Ramsden that the plans for an armoured thrust had to be abandoned. It was decided that the focus would be on the thrust towards Ruin Ridge, choosing the 2nd 28th Battalion for the operation. The hurriedly devised plan of attack was for the 50th Royal Tank Regiment to carry one platoon of the 2nd 28th and a handful of engineers forward, and then a 2nd Squadron to follow at 700 yards behind. The 2nd Squadron would provide support to the engineers until they had cleared a lane through the minefield. A troop of 6-pounder guns and the machine gun platoon would follow, and finally the remainder of the 2nd 28th would come through on foot. A report arrived at headquarters from a reconnaissance aircraft advising that they had identified at least 500 enemy vehicles dispersed along Materia Ridge. Infantry were digging in, and there were at least 20 gun positions. The information was passed on, but nothing more was heard of it. The rush nature of the attack soon came back to bite the attackers in the bum. There was hardly enough time to get the troops to their start points. No real reconnaissance of the route had been carried out. The infantry, which was to ride the tanks forward, arrived in a rush and jumped onto the wrong tanks. At zero hour, the tanks moved forward, but the sappers hadn't been on board. The lack of reconnaissance resulted in 20 tanks being disabled by an unknown minefield. The remainder pushed on until they arrived at what they thought was Ruin Ridge, but they were actually a bit short. Thinking they were at the right spot, they stopped and waited for the rest of the battalion to catch up. The 2nd 28th troops set out a little late, but nothing too serious. Morshead watched them shake out into extended order and move off, and stated, I watched the advance of the 2nd 28th battalion and all the indications of success were present. End quote. Communication with the battalion was lost early on when the wireless van was destroyed and it wasn't until 11.45pm that word was received that the troops had reached a ridge with a ruin on the left. The tanks withdrew and the infantry began digging in. Up to this point they had captured 59 German prisoners and 5 Italian for the loss of 2 officers and 52 other ranks. 
When the tanks made it back to the Allied lines, they overshot the mark. This got Brigadier Richards of the 1st Tank Brigade thinking that maybe they'd pulled up a bit short of the objective, so he went forward for himself and then had a bit of a squiz. His thoughts were confirmed and he announced that the 2nd 28th were actually 3,000 yards short of Ruin Ridge. Lieutenant Leiterwood, the forward observation officer with the 2nd 28th, also thought they were short by about 2,500 yards. Either way, that's a big error and I don't really have an explanation for it. Maybe, with the rushed orders, they were simply told to advance to the ruins rather than be told to advance X number of yards. When they saw the ruins, they just assumed that that was where they were supposed to be, perhaps. But that's a very dodgy way of defining objectives. The next morning, at around 4.30, Brigadier Cox went forward to advise Lieutenant Colonel Cox to widen his front and push patrols well forward. Also, to send troops out to make contact with the 2nd 32nd Battalion in front of Troop Point 22. By 9.23, the two battalions had made contact and a front line of some description was established. At this point, it is good to remember that this was all part of a bigger offensive undertaken by 8th Army and it was the only remotely successful operation. Auchinleck felt that the only option was to keep hitting Rommel wherever and whenever he could and so he began planning another offensive. Rommel, meanwhile, had identified where the greatest threat to his line was, the 9th Division Front. To counter this threat, he had moved his entire 90th Light Division and three Italian divisions to that area. Auchinleck's new objective was to break through the enemy lines between Ruin Ridge and Dare El Dib to the south. The 24th Australian Brigade was to push to Ruin Ridge, then turn right and extend along Mitieria. The newly arrived English 69th Brigade would make the main thrust through the Axis lines. Auchinleck wanted to commence the attack on the night of the 24th to the 25th of July, but Ramsden reckoned the South Africans were too tired for a battle at that stage. No mention of the Australians maybe being a little fatigued as well, considering what they had done over the last week or so. But it was agreed that kick-off would be delayed until the night of the 26th to the 27th. The 24th Brigade's plan was for the 2nd 28th to make the push towards Ruin Ridge, after which the 2nd 43rd would follow along and make the right turn to take the rest of the ridge. The 20th Brigade would be in reserve, ready to exploit any breakthrough which may occur. Morstead issued a general instruction on the 24th stating that the division's battle cunning had gone a bit rusty since Tobruk. He instructed officers on reconnaissance to not make it obvious that that was what they were doing. Troops were to receive information as quickly as possible. It should also be advised tanks would not hang around long after an objective had been taken due to the increased risk they faced. Infantry should therefore plan to look after themselves as soon as possible upon reaching the objective. Well, they didn't call him Ming the Merciless for nothing. Unlike the early attempt to take Ruin Ridge, this time around, the 2nd 28th carried out a careful reconnaissance for the attack. On the dot of midnight on the 26th to 27th, they set off. They travelled about 800 yards before coming under fire, with Captain Carlton of the right front company and Captain Stenhouse of the right rear company being wounded early on. Both would survive their injuries, but their companies were without their commanders for the rest of the advance. By 1.10am, the leading companies had finally reached Ruin Ridge, with the rear left company clearing the objective with a bayonet charge. Communication with the brigade had once again been lost, as all attempts to run a phone line across the minefield had failed, as the area was still under heavy fire. The ground proved to be too rocky for the troops to dig themselves in properly. They could only get down about one foot. But when a foot-deep hole can mean the difference between life and death, that's good enough. Ammunition was running short, as reported to Major Simpson of the 2nd 28th's A Echelon, waiting for word for their turn to move forward. Simpson decided that the only way to get the ammunition to the troops was to go hell for leather, past burning vehicles, through a mined area and under the German bombardment. Remember that these vehicles were full of ammunition. The courage of the drivers deserves special mention, I reckon. Many managed to get through, but several hit mines, and if the mine didn't destroy them, then the enemy anti-tank guns soon turned them into burning wrecks. Shortly after 2am, Lieutenant Head had been sent back to advise Brigadier Godfrey of the situation. He reported that the 2nd 28th was on its objective, but were taking fire from machine guns on the left, an anti-tank gun and machine guns on the right, and a light gun to their front. Things were grim. Dawn wasn't far away. With the sun would come the inevitable German counterattack. The minefield needed to be cleared ASAP, and the 2nd Armoured Brigade needed to break through to attack from the east. If they couldn't, the fate of the 2nd 28th was a coin toss. To make matters worse, the 69th Brigade attack was a disaster. Moving forward, the 6th Durham Light Infantry came under fire and took cover, throwing the advance into disarray as the East Yorkshire Regiment came forward, got mixed up with the Durhams, and they lost all semblance of order. 
When the Germans counterattacked, both battalions were overrun. So no help coming from that direction. The 2nd Armoured were due to commence their move at 7am, following the 69th Brigade. But the gap in the minefield hadn't been sufficiently cleared, and so zero hour was moved back to 8.15. Once again, the communication problem came to hurt the 2nd 28th. Brigade headquarters knew they were on their objective and digging in, but they had no idea of just how precarious the position was. So there wasn't much urgency in getting the armoured lads moving as there otherwise would have been. By 8.45, the armour was still sitting at the start line. Then the true reality of the situation became known at headquarters when the 2nd 28th finally managed to get a wireless message through. It was only four words, but it said all that needed saying. We are in trouble. Further messages came through directing artillery, but there was a 10 minute delay due to fear of hitting the armour as it was going forward. But at 9.30 it was reported that the tanks had been held up on the minefield. I can only imagine the kind words the 2nd 28th lads would have been muttering towards the tankies. Up on the ridge throughout the night, the battalion had been subjected to heavy fire. At 3am, Lieutenant Harrod was ordered to take some men to silence a 50mm anti-tank gun that was causing most of the damage to those men trying to clear the minefield. He led four men out, but when they reached the gun, they found it defended by a strong infantry presence. Two more truckloads of infantry were being unloaded as Harrod watched. There was nothing he and his four men could do, and so they made their way back. Before dawn, 18 truckloads of German infantry were unloaded on the right flank and were soon pushing hard. Lieutenant Colonel McCarter had no communication to the rear and was running short on ammunition, but they managed to keep the upper hand. At about 9am, Captain Allen's company saw tanks and armoured cars to their south and thought they were British. Allen drove down to meet them, but too late he realised they were German. They opened fire and Allen was killed. It was at this point that the battalion signal managed to repair the wireless and get their message to brigade. They were indeed in trouble. They were now being subjected to a fierce counter-attack. Battery Sergeant Major, Warrant Officer 2, McKilrick, and two of his gunners worked their six-pounder gun on the right flank, taking out several vehicles, but the gun was soon knocked out and McKilrick was killed. At 9.43, McCarter signalled headquarters, stating, There are tanks all around us. You had better hurry up. Rock the artillery in. The tanks had finally begun their advance, but didn't get very far. The leading tanks reached point 30, close to the ruin, but they saw no Australians and were forced back by anti-tank fire. They lost 22 tanks, all witnessed by the men of the 2nd 28th, who were relying on those tanks to pull them out of the fire. At 11.40, a message arrived at Brigade that the armour, quote, were not playing until the infantry guaranteed the mines clear, end quote. Morshead was told about 1pm that the armour had found the gap in the minefield, but, to quote him, what they did with it we never heard. Anyhow, our battle had already been finished three hours before. End quote. You can almost hear the despair in his words, can't you? At 10.30, the last message from the 2nd 28th was received. It said simply, we have to give in. I'll let the battalion historian describe the end. Right up to 1000 hours, there had been no thought of surrender. The tanks were closing in from three directions and Don Company on the forward left position was the first to be overrun. Immediately, woe to Fred Holding of A Company, jumped from his pit to exhort his men to keep firing. As the tanks closed in on battalion headquarters, a Bren gunner ran to an exposed position to open fire. His 303 bullets were useless against the thick steel, and he was shot down by one of the other tanks. The loss of this life convinced Lieutenant Colonel McCarter of the futility of further resistance. He stood up in his weapons pit, and with an upward wave of his hand, signalled his battalion to end the hopeless struggle. Many of the 2nd 28th were in tears as they were formed up into a column and marched off to captivity. The bitterness of the moment was aggravated when the column trudged into the artillery concentrations which were still being fired and more casualties were suffered. The final opposition did not end until early afternoon. One platoon from C Company, commanded by Lieutenant John Draper, was occupying a position on the forward slope of the ridge and well out on the right flank. Unaware of the surrender and believing that the battalion had withdrawn to safety, this platoon fought on until it was finally overrun by the tanks of the Brihel group. End quote. Two officers and 63 other ranks were known to have been killed or wounded, and 20 officers, 469 men, were missing. And that was the end of Auchinleck's attempts to dislodge Rommel. The 8th Army was exhausted. The 2nd 28th Battalion was decimated, while the other Australian battalions were severely reduced in strength and exhausted. The New Zealand, South African and British troops were similarly worn out, and the armour was in serious need of reinforcement of men and machines. He had succeeded in stopping the advance of Rommel, but he had just about exhausted his own army in the process. 
Neither side were in a position to return to the offensive. Each side dug in to lick their wounds and figure out where to go from here. Auchinleck himself was beginning to lose his stability. Over coming weeks, he fluctuated between thrilling optimism and crushing pessimism. In his diary on the 6th of August, Morshead wrote of Auchinleck, whom he referred to as the barometer, He could not really give me the factors which brought about such a complete somersault. The barometer of the 8th Army has been wildly oscillating ever since our arrival. No stability, a wealth of plans and appreciations resulting in continual chutes, tactical exercises without troops. Fighting always in bits and pieces and so defeats in detail. Formations being broken up automatically. It has been difficult and unpleasant keeping the 9th Division intact. General Wavell came to see me and we had a long talk. End quote. The strain casualties throughout the first battle of El Alamein had been severe. The numbers could be replaced, but a lot of experienced officers and NCOs have been lost, and experience is much harder to replace. Fortunately, the men who had fought and survived the battle could be relied on to step up and take the place of those lost leaders, or at least provide sound advice for the new replacements. The division had received a battering, and they hadn't really achieved the breakthrough that they were expecting. With time, the division would rebuild and be ready for its next big test, the battle which would etch the 9th Division into the annals of military history, the second battle of El Alamein. Hopefully the experience they had gained during their fighting at Ruin Ridge would set them up for what would become the second battle of El Alamein. But we'll get to that. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under amhpodcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.